Our reading this morning comes from John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is God's word for us. I, I doubt many of you are familiar with this story. But in 1873, a U.S. Navy ship by the name of USS Juniata uh, left New York Harbor to search the western coast of Greenland for survivors from another American exploratory ship called the Polaris uh, that the Navy learned had become trapped in an ice flow. <clears throat> and after sailing the Juniata 400 miles above the Arctic Circle, with still no sign of the Polaris, Captain Daniel L. Brain decided it was unsafe to proceed any further. He asked for a half dozen volunteers who were willing to, to thread the ship's launch. That's the little boat carried on the big boat, right? It was 28 feet long, called the Little Juniata, another 400 miles north. So 800 miles north of the Arctic Circle. That's cold, if you didn't know that. <laughs> According to author Hampton Sides, and, I, and I'm reading here from a fantastic book he wrote called In the Kingdom of Ice, the secondary probe which Brain estimated would take several weeks was a dubious undertaking at best. The little Juniata seemed a frightfully vulnerable craft, not much more than an open boat. Ice fields like these had crushed entire whaling fleets. And Brain knew he could not order anyone to undertake this risky assignment. He had to rely on volunteers. And a man named George DeLong raised his hand first, and Brain invited him to captain the vessel. 
and I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. (laughs) You have to go read a book. (laughs) It's a great book. But you don't need to know the end of the story. It, It ends well enough. Don't fear. Don't be thinking about that the whole time I'm preaching. But I don't think you need to know the rest of that story to, to know that stories like that are, are the stuff of legends. You've got what? A mission with minimal chance of success, poor equipment, limited food, and danger on every side. It makes for a gripping read, especially if you're curled up in front of a fire in a warm living room. But, but I think, and I think if you read this book, you'll have the same conclusion I did. You know, you're, what, what do most people read? What are the, as they're reading, what do they conclude from a story like this? I, I think at some point, this thought comes through our minds. Thank God I'm not on that mission. I'm just not the... The missional type, we say. The work of daily life is enough for me, and I'm quite happy to leave all that crazy adventurous stuff, missional stuff, to, to people that do CrossFit. Well, friend, I, I bring that up. That attitude we can have, you know, I'm, I'm just not the missional type. I just, you know, give me the newspaper in the morning and coffee and work and back home and little TV and bed and repeat. That, that's what I want. I, I, I bring that up because if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what you need to know. Okay, Jesus has already given you a mission. He's given you a mission. Whether or not you you feel like you're the missional type or the daring adventurous type, he's given you a mission and it's not for a half dozen uniquely gifted, specially trained and exceptionally mature believers who eat danger for breakfast or or get adrenaline highs from, from doing all kinds of great exploits for God. Okay, it's a mission for all of us. And I don't say all of us in, in, this, in the sense that it's available to any Christian who dares to volunteer for the crazy thing. It's for all of us in the sense that Jesus has already given it to us. And illustrating and clarifying and equipping us for our mission is what John chapter 4, 27 through 42 is all about. I don't think I need to convince you that the the number of good, please hear that, good social causes, which Christian and non-Christian voices alike thrust in the church's face and say, do something, just continues to grow these days. And amidst that kind of cacophony, I, I think it is so easy as Christians, to just flip back and forth, okay, between on the one hand, a treadmill called do it all. And on the other hand, a cynical laziness that says, forget about it all. I'm just going to watch Netflix. What, what the Lord does for us in John 4, friends, is he 
urges us, he directs us, he leads us down a very different path. Not, not, a, not a guilt-driven do-it-all or a cynical, I'm just going to watch TV, but a path of faithfulness to the primary mission he has given us to gather souls for God. It's what Jesus is doing here. So here's the question I want us to answer together. What does fulfilling our mission require of us? If you're a Christian, what's it require of you? And by the way, if if you're not a Christian or you're wrestling with the faith, I'm really glad you're listening to this message because I hope it will clarify for you from God's word, what is it that Jesus has actually tasked Christians to do? I'm not sure if your present notion of what the church should be all about is in fact what Jesus himself says the church should be all about. So listen up, this is for all of us. So, so what does fulfilling our mission require? Okay, if you're a Christian, I'm gonna give you four answers. For the sake of time, we are gonna move quickly. So buckle up, all right? Answer number one, we follow Jesus by urging people to come and see Jesus. We follow Jesus by urging people to come and see Jesus. If, if you're not familiar with the context here, we've lingered in this chapter for several weeks. Jesus has just finished explaining to a Samaritan woman what it actually means to worship God. That's a good question. And he's taught her that, that true worship is an inside-out sort of thing. It, it begins not with a, a change that we make in our external behavior. You know, checkbox, I read my Bible, I went to church kind of thing. No, but with a change the Spirit of God works in our hearts on the inside. Okay, Jesus calls that worship in spirit. But we also worship in truth. We don't, we don't do whatever we think is right, <laughs> and then pretend that God is somehow pleased. We, we look to Jesus, okay, the, the son of God, who, who reveals to us the truth about God. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, we learn that, that we are both more sinful and more loved than we could ever imagine. And that the truth of the gospel is that Jesus is eager to cleanse you from the guilt of your sin and to set you free to follow him in every area of life. But friend, that, that doesn't happen automatically, okay? A, a response on our part is required and it's this response the Samaritan woman makes in verses 27 to 30. What does she do? Two things, first she repents. Okay, she, she leaves her water jar representing a life devoted to satisfying her material desires. She leaves that and then she believes. A a seed of genuine faith takes root in this woman's heart as she confesses Jesus as the Christ, God's anointed savior. She, She runs into her village, neighboring Samaritan village, and says, verse 29, look there, come see, get out of here, guys. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did can this be the Christ? And her, her words, this social outcast, Samaritan woman, her words to her countrymen, they, they echo the very same words that a man named Philip spoke to Nathaniel in John 1.46 after he too encountered Jesus. What did Philip say to Nathaniel? Hey, Nathaniel, come and see 
come and see. Heartfelt zeal to do good to others. Okay, by, by telling them about Jesus and inviting them to come and see for themselves. Friends, that, that is a mark of genuine faith in Jesus. Notice the Savior didn't force this woman to do it, right? He didn't say, you know, I appreciate you leaving the water jar. Happy to give you some living water. Happy to save you. And, and now, unfortunately, you know, I need a little something from you too. So, so there's this thing called personal evangelism. And nobody likes it. And I'm not sure I like it either. But, but you just brush your teeth and then get it done, right? No. No, that's not what happened. It was the spontaneous desire and overflow of a heart that had what? Really experienced and encountered the Lord. Notice that. It was one of her first acts of true worship. We, sometimes, friends, as Christians, we, we buy into this lie. And I, we do this all the time. That introducing other people to Jesus by explaining who he is and what he's done is something that has to wait until we get our spiritual act together for a few years. Or, or until, you know, God gives us a perfect opportunity. What, what do we say sometimes to each other? Well, just praying for opportunities. Yeah, we've been praying for opportunities for two decades, but haven't seen any, but we're just still praying for opportunities. If that's the case, I'm not making light of that struggle. I can relate to that struggle. But, it, but if that's the case, friend, if you are not regularly urging other people in different ways to come and see Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Then you should ask yourself, have you lost sight of who Jesus really is? You need to ask that question. I've shared this with some of you before, but you know, when my boys are in awe or amazed of some, about something that they saw or read in the day and you know I get home from work and walk through the door I I, I can't get a word in edgewise <laughs> why not Be- because I don't have to guilt them or or pressure them into telling me they they can't help but tell me because they're so excited they're they're so amazed and this woman did the exact same thing. Her amazement and joy in Jesus just overflowed like the apostles in Acts 4.20. I love this. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Translation, I'm sorry, but you are not going to be able to shut me up. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says the same thing. For the love of Christ controls us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The first way we are faithful to our mission is by urging people to come and see Jesus. Come and see. Second, we find life by devoting ourselves to God's work. So we follow Jesus by by urging people to come and see Jesus. And at the same time, we find life by devoting ourselves to God's work. If you look at verse 33 with me, Jesus' disciples make, this is classic, we do the same thing, don't mock them, the same mistake that the Samaritan woman made a few minutes earlier. What do they do? They're only thinking in terms of their physical and material desires and world and wants and needs. 
They got blinders on. And so, so about the same time that this woman leaves to go back to her village, they come back from shopping for groceries. And, and they urge Jesus, kindly, to eat something. So it's been a long journey. Everybody's tired. Jesus is tired. John actually tells us earlier in John 4, he was wearied from the journey. That's why he was sitting by a well. And when Jesus declines their offer, you know, basically saying, guys, thanks, but, but I have food that you don't know about. Well, they're really confused. They, they start thinking things like, well, did, did you make a pizza run? <laughs> you know, did, did, did you find a random granola bar in your pocket? What's going on? And Jesus replies in verse 34, listen, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Think about that. We, we tend to think that, that what is most life-giving, satisfying, is tending to our physical needs and desires, don't we? It's not selfishness. It's self-care. It's, it's me time. You know, maybe you've heard somebody say, after all, how can I love my neighbor as myself if I'm slacking off and loving myself? And, and we know, as believers, in our, in our heads, that participating in God's work is what we're supposed to do. But, but when push comes to shove, so often, we, we just end up prioritizing our physical needs and desires over the work of God. And it sounds like this. It's been a long week. Or it's been a busy season. Or I think I need to stay home and, and sleep in and, and get some rest. I think I need some me time. I feel like I need a break from, from reading my Bible. Or going to community group. Or gathering with other Christians. Or, or going to church this week. And you know, I, I'm, I'm sure God understands. I mean, he, he created us with physical bodies, right? Physical needs and desires. I mean, did, didn't he command us to rest? So don't you go telling me that I got to go do something tonight. I, I, I need a little self-care time. I mean, we don't always say that, but, but we can think that, right? I I'm not saying, friends, that tending to your physical needs is a bad thing. Hear that. And nor is Jesus. Verse verse 34 isn't some sort of masochistic rallying call (laughs) to to a life of asceticism. You know, join a monk and live on top of a pole. That's not what Jesus is saying here, okay? He's saying two things. Listen very carefully. First, he's challenging our priorities, What's, what's more important to you? Do, doing God's work or satisfying your physical desires? And you know, the, the evil in our desires, remember this, isn't, it's usually not what we want many times. It's, it's that we want that too much. So the, the solution isn't to stop desiring food or sex or sleep or rest. What's the solution? It's to make sure that we don't allow satisfying those desires to take priority, to take precedent over following Jesus and doing the work of God. That the order 
matters. Which desires are calling the shots is what he's getting at here. And and secondly, he's not just challenging our priorities. Just as importantly, in verse 34, Jesus is challenging us. What, What do you believe about the nature of the Lord's work in the first place? You know, we, we think that prioritizing our physical comfort above all else is, is the key, it's the secret to an enjoyable and satisfying life. And we can even think that as Christians. We, we just try to integrate into that, you know, but, but there's also this right thing. It's not particularly joyful or satisfying or life-giving, but it is right. I'll grant that, I suppose. Call to obeying God following Jesus. But, you know, I mean, let's be honest, right? Like, that doesn't really feel good. This feels good. Well, Jesus, he's kindly revealing that that is one of Satan's best lies. Because God's work, friend, isn't just right. It's good. It's, it's life-giving. It's, it's satisfying. What does he say? It's like food. And, and don't insert some like, I bet he was eating pita bread with old hummus. Okay, no, like, it, think your favorite food. You know, what, what, what does the psalmist say? You have put more joy in my heart as I'm following you, obeying you, surrendering my life to your will than they have when their grain and new wine abound. Doing God's will, God's work, is satisfying. It's the path of life. And friend, as I say that, if you're thinking right now to yourself, okay, Matthew, I want to believe that, but my experience is that when I try to do God's work, when I try this thing called obeying God's word or following Jesus, I don't just get tired. I I feel like the spiritual life is being drained out of me. I, I feel like I'm just on this treadmill that this is impossible, it doesn't feel life-giving. Well, let me give you a couple questions to take home and think about. First, are you sure you're doing God's work? Is it something you think needs to be done or something you know God wants you to do? That's important. Okay, second, are you doing it in God's way? Are you rushing the process, or are you being patient? Are you doing it for, for God's glory or for your own? And finally, are you doing it by God's power or your own strength? You know, I love how Jesus, when, when he speaks of what he sought to accomplish here, look back at verse 34. He doesn't talk about my work or my actions or my assignment. What does he say? He says, my food, what is life-giving and most nourishing to me is to accomplish his work. Who's the his at the end of verse 34? What's God the Father? It's the Father's work. Jesus never forgot that, that his work was ultimately the Father's work. And so when you think about, is God's will for me to introduce people at my work, or in my home, or at school, to Jesus? And the answer is yes. Remember, friend, that's not ultimately your work. That's the Father's. He, he's the one who, who draws men and women to himself, even through really feeble words and feeble actions like ours. So take heart in that, friend. We find life by devoting ourselves to God's work. Here's the third thing we must do. 
we embrace our mission with confidence and humility. So we follow Jesus by urging people to come and see Jesus. We find life by devoting ourselves to God's work and we embrace our mission with confidence and humility. I wonder when you look out at the world, what, what do you see? You know, when you're just browsing through your feeds on your phone or watching TV or reading the paper, what, what, or even just walking around your city or neighborhood, what, what do you see? Do you see a, a carnival of pleasures? Do, do you see untold brokenness and suffering or, or maybe a haunted house of spiritual dangers? Well, the point of verse 35, friends, Jesus' words here, is that only when you see what Jesus sees will you be able to embrace your mission with confidence and joy. You have to see what he sees in order to embrace our mission with confidence and joy. What does he see? Verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Are you guys not intimately familiar with the fact because you live in an agrarian society that it works like this? Sow seed, wait, (laughs) reap harvest. Y'all know that, right? Well, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Well, Jesus is doing the same thing he did earlier. He's he's using a physical image, in this case, a harvest. Think a field of wheat or barley to make a spiritual point. So in case you didn't know this, when, when a field of barley looks white, that's one of the signs that you know it's ripe or ready for harvest. And, and Jesus is saying here that the souls of the men and women around us are no different than that. That the time of waiting is over. That, that right now, today is the day of salvation. They are ripe and ready for harvest. They're, they're ready to receive the gift of eternal life that Jesus is eager to give them as we invite them to come to him. Jesus is telling his disciples here that that with his arrival on earth, a, a page has been flipped in redemptive history. There's a new, a new age has dawned. Centuries of longing and, and waiting for God to deliver his people from sin and death have come to an end in the person and work of Christ. Jesus' life and death and resurrection, in other words, they usher in this new era of spiritual fruitfulness and abundant life for men and women from every nation. And it's, it's exactly what the prophet Amos anticipated in Amos 9.13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. What, what's the prophet saying? What's he promising God's going to do? Hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. He's saying a day is coming when God is so going to reveal himself, so so decisively intervene and break in with his goodness and his power and his glory that the hearts of men and women, the soil of our souls, will become rich and fruitful and receptive to the work and word of God. So much so, and, and this was 
stunning if you were a farmer, right? That he says, guys, this is incredible. The harvest is going to be so plentiful that the gap, the time gap between sowing and reaping is gone. The harvest is so abundant that the harvesting is continuing right up to the very point in time where we're supposed to start sowing again. It's that abundant. Christian, Jesus' point here is that you are surrounded in your neighborhood or in your work or in your school with men and women in whom the Spirit of God is mightily at work. And I, and I want to challenge very specifically those of you who when you are out in the world, all you see is a spiritual danger to avoid or, or a threat to your home and family and church. We need to see what Jesus sees. Don't, don't assume, it's so easy to do, that when you meet somebody or talk with someone or have an interaction you didn't expect or maybe it's with an old friend that you haven't talked to for years, don't make your starting assumption, you know what? I bet they have no interest in Christianity. I, I bet they hate Christians and I bet if I raise a, a spiritual topic right now, I'm gonna lose this relationship. So, you know, just for the sake of, friendship and that future opportunity I've been praying for, I'm just going to be quiet. We can do that, right? But, but that's not the kind of faith-filled attitude Jesus is telling us to have here, friends. He's telling us as the Lord of the harvest that, that it is ripe and people are ready and eager in this age, right now, to receive the good news of the gospel. And God's purpose and his providence to use you to tell them. Look at verse 36 because here's the end or the goal as we're faithful to do that. So that, he says, sower and reaper may rejoice together. I don't know if every one of you, if you're a believer, has, has experienced this, but, but friends, one of the most incredible joys God ever gives us as his people is the joy of leading somebody to faith in Christ. There, there's no, nothing else quite compares to that. To, to say to men and women around us, to urge them, come and see how good and wise and powerful and great Jesus is. And, and then to experience that joy of watching God do what only God can do. What is he so good at doing that only he can do? He takes hearts of stone that say, uh-uh, yeah, whatever, that sounds like a joke. And he replaces that with a heart of flesh that, that is able to perceive the truth of the gospel and respond in repentance and faith. That, that work takes a lot of patience. It's work, but it's a joyful work, friends, because we get to see God do what only God can do. And I remind you, because it's consistent with Jesus' image here, that this work of harvesting takes a lot of perseverance. I, I have yet to see a field of barley or wheat march itself into the barn. You know, but sometimes as Christians, we, we con ourselves into thinking, well, well, that's just what will happen in the church, right? Like one day, revival will break out and, and a stream of non-Christian friends will walk through these doors finally and then we'll all just kind of stand up. It, it, God could do that, right? But how does he ordinarily bring 
a field of ripe barley into a barn through harvesters who do work, who take initiative, who go out into the field confident that as they're faithful to reap, the harvest will come in. That's what Jesus is calling us to here, friends. That doesn't mean every person you share Christ with will respond the way you want them to. But it does mean that we can embrace our mission with confidence because, because the king, the Lord of the harvest, has already surveyed the field. And he said that it is ripe and ready. And I love the way that Jesus adds here before he's done instructing his disciples that that promise of fruitful gospel ministry, that's true whether God's called you to a work of sowing or a work of reaping. But both of those are part of bringing the harvest. You know, I... I really enjoy, these are my favorites, right? When, when the Lord gives me an opportunity to, to lead someone to faith in Christ or to, or to have a, a really intense conversation about what is the truth of the gospel and what's it mean to repent and believe and, and those conversations feel like reaping. But, but there are many more opportunities that God gives me, Christian, that he will fill your life with to simply drop a seed of biblical truth into a conversation with a non-Christian friend or, or to just explain a small part of the gospel that, that connects to, to something that person is really struggling with that you took the time to understand by asking good questions. That's called sowing. And if you're a parent, you need to know your life is filled right now with sowing opportunities. And if it's a season of sowing, humility means being content with the role God has assigned you and trusting him to bear fruit. And if it's a season of reaping, humility means what? Remembering that the harvest you gathered, the spiritual fruit and response you just witnessed, probably would never have been possible apart from the faithful work of other men and women who have been part of that person's spiritual journey. Verse 37 hits the nail on the head. One sows and another reaps. And as the Father has sent the Son, Jesus reminds us here that he has sent every single one of us. Nobody gets to observe or sit or, or cheer from the sideline or show up on a Sunday and love being part of a church where everybody else is doing amazing things for the kingdom of God. Okay, it's, it's an all hands on deck kind of mission. And so the question, friend, is not at all whether you've been sent or whether you've been sufficiently trained or whether you are ready or whether you've conquered enough sin in your life that you can actually talk about Jesus with integrity. That's important. But the question is not have you been sent, but are you going to be faithful? Are you going to follow Jesus by urging people to come and see? Are you going to find life by devoting yourself to the Lord's work? Are you going to embrace your mission with confidence and humility? Here's the last thing the Lord exhorts us to do. Point number four. We need to trust the power of the word. If you do the first three things I've just said, and you think, I got this. I got this. 
I have not been faithful in telling people about the Lord on the whole. I've been ruled by the fear of man. I've been quiet. But now, I heard Matthew preach, and I have got this. Um, no, you don't. <laughs> You're kidding yourself. Look at verse 39. Because this is both remarkable and incredibly encouraging. We'll end with this point. When the Samaritan woman said, come and see what happened. What happened? John writes, many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. I wonder if Mike read that earlier, if that, if that surprised you. That that was the payoff. That that was the fruit. You've got a whole group of people, Samaritans, who come to faith in Jesus, believe in Jesus, even though they have yet to personally see Jesus or hear a single word from Jesus. This, This woman hadn't even been a Christian for a half day. You realize that? She didn't have all her doctrinal statement of faith, church covenant ducks in a row. Though that's important. She hadn't taken an apologetics class or been through an evangelism training program. She didn't, she didn't even lay out, that this is incredible. She didn't even lay out some sort of comprehensive four-point presentation of the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. That's a helpful outline. But, but w- w- what did she say? All she said is what? Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. This guy's incredible. Can this be the Christ? She gave her testimony. She simply explained how much Jesus had done for her. And through that account, that story broken and missing pieces as it was, the the Samaritan people heard through the power of the Spirit of God, they heard the truth of Jesus. And they responded in faith. Friend, here's the point, okay? The, The word of your testimony is powerful. But, but it's not because your words are powerful. It's because God will use your words to point to the power of the word made flesh. That's what happened here. And that's the key. You can expect Jesus to use your personal story of just how much he has done for you. And, and take heart in the fact that, that on so many levels, this Samaritan woman was not the ideal candidate to reach an entire village. You know? She was a social outcast. She she had so much to learn about Jesus, but that's exactly the sort of person the Lord loves to use. 1 Corinthians 2, 3, Paul, the most probably religiously educated man of his generation, says, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. His preaching didn't feel like a TV production. But it was a demonstration of the spirit and of power. 
so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. A powerful God used that broken Samaritan woman's testimony to bring an entire village of people to Jesus. They believed before they had even seen him. But when they saw him, their faith grew all the more. Verse 42, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Not, not, not of Jews or of Samaritans, of the whole world. And ultimately, friends, that's what we want, right? We want our words to send people back to God's word. To the words of scripture. Where the Lord will keep showing them the goodness and glory of Jesus. Remember, trust the power of God's word. Maybe you've had, Christian, this notion lingering in your mind for a long time. Oh yeah, I know I have some sort of mission out there beyond just trying to make it through another day. Well, you do. You're that loud and clear. And thank God for his word where he brings clarity and direction to that. If if you're going to be faithful in your mission, what's it going to require? Follow Jesus by urging people to come and see him. Find life by devoting yourself to God's work. Embrace that mission with confidence and humility and trust the power of the word. Okay, that's, that's how you say yes to Jesus and how we obey his command to gather souls for God. That mission, engaging in that mission is what true worship requires front. We're gonna sing together to close in just a minute. But as I was praying through this passage this morning, the the Lord put several specific groups of people on my heart that I want to briefly exhort, okay? So Kevin, you can bring the band on up. But I want to bring this to bear on a couple groups in particular, okay? First, friends, I believe there are some of you that need to hear a word of rebuke this morning because you've been selfishly sitting on the sideline and and you have been content, if you're honest, to just stick with your happy Christian circle of friends, if you're being honest. And the Lord Jesus, because he loves you and wants to give you the joy of being part of his work, is lovingly rebuking you this morning, reminding you he's given you a mission. I think there's another group of you who are engaged in this mission, but you are tempted to lose heart because you are in a long season of sowing. And as we were singing earlier, it feels like harvest time and I still don't see any fruit. If that's you, friend, take heart in this, that when the Lord of the harvest says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest, he's not messing with you. He's not playing with you. It's not psych. (laughs) It's true. And he's calling you to trust him for the timing of that harvest. And the last group are, are those of you that I believe the Lord wants to admonish. Not to rebuke or encourage in a direct way, but, but, but lovingly admonish because in some way you've counted yourself out. You've said, I know there's a mission. I know God wants the church to urge people to come and see Jesus, but I just don't have what it takes. I, I, every time I open my mouth, it just, I, I, um, 
I don't have what it takes. I, I have a boring testimony. As a dad, I'm praying my kids have boring testimonies. Let's just say that. But take heart in this, friend. It's, it's not the felt power of your words that brings in that harvest. It's the power of God working through your weakness and your feeble words. And all the time you try to say something and the person you're talking to just looks at you like you have four heads. Those are the moments God loves to use. Remember that. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so kind, so kind, to hold up this Samaritan woman's example and in so doing to call us back to the mission you've given us. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be less selfish and to keep our eyes on you, the Savior who has sacrificially, unselfishly loved us and given us a mission to say to people all around us in a thousand ways, you've got to come and see this Jesus. That requires being amazed and standing in awe of you in the first place, Lord. And we pray wherever that is lacking, that your spirit would bring spiritual life and joy into our hearts. Amen.